Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hello, and welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, recently voted by Billboard Magazine as the number one Apple II podcast for November 2011. My name is Ken Gagney, and joining me on the air is none other than the one, the only, Mike McGinnis. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ken. You know, I don't think that's true, what you just said about Billboard Magazine. I dare you to prove otherwise. Well, you may have me there. Aha. And how are you this evening, Mike? I'm well. How are you? I am good. I am never going to get used to how hot this studio can get. It is roasting in here. Well, I'm sort of envious of that, actually. It's been in the teens and 20s here over the past couple of days. I heard it snowed recently. It did. A little bit. Not too much. Just enough to really screw up traffic. And we have not had any snow here in Massachusetts since, oh, roughly Halloween. It's been a while. It's a strange winter. Mm. Did you have a pleasant Thanksgiving? I did. Nora and I sat around and watched movies all day. What did you do? I bounced around to various family affairs. I went first west, then I went north, then I went east, then I came back home south. So you were all over the map. I was, and there was a real eye-opening moment that I have every now and then when I'm hanging out with my family, which is probably why I try to do it not any more often than I need to which was that I was hanging out with uh, my two cousins, and they each have three little girls, uh, ranging in age from like 9 to 18, and they were telling me about how they spent their summer since I hadn't seen them since then. Apparently, they had a lakeside cabin on Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire for an entire week all to themselves, and they had a great time up there. Now, Mike, if you were on a lake, specifically Lake Winnipesaukee, for a week, what would you do? I've never been on a lake for an entire week, so I don't actually know what I'd do. Well, there are the standard responses like just hang out or go boating or jet skiing or whatever, and those are all valid responses. But Lake Winnipesaukee specifically, I just had to stare at my family and say, you were at Lake Winnipesaukee for an entire week and you didn't go to Fun Spot? Oh, that's right. It's up in that area, isn't it? There, Yeah, and not only did they look at me like, why would we go there? But they looked at me and said, What's that? Face palm. Heartbreaking. It is. I mean, I had to explain to them, this is the world's largest arcade with over 200 machines from the 80s, and they're all still just a quarter each. And I'm looking at them and how uninterested they are. One of the my first cousins once removed actually said, oh, I thought you were cool. Ouch. And I, I just had to look at them, and I'm thinking to myself, how am I related to these people? But I know at the same time that I'm thinking that, all 29 of them are looking at me and saying, how are we related to him? Probably so. Maybe it's because you suggested Fun Spot instead of Pinball Wizard. They probably would give me just as blank a look if I had suggested the arcade that is only a half an hour from them in which I immediately went home and sent them directions to. They probably deleted that email immediately and added you to their spam filter. Well, I think I might have some hope in my cousin-in-law because in the basement of their house, he actually has a Super Mario Brothers pinball machine. Oh, nice. And I told him, hey, if you like that, there are hundreds more just a few miles northeast of you. Does it work? It does. It works great. He keeps it in good condition. Cool. Indeed. And speaking of classic arcade games, I want to tell you very briefly about a fantastic novel I read called Ready Player One. Have you heard of it? I have, and in fact, it's in my uh, iPad right now waiting to be read as soon as I finish Steve Jobs' biography. Well, I'm glad to know that it's near the top of your list because it's a great read. It's by Ernest Klein, who is also the screenplay writer for the movie Fanboys. Have you seen that? I have several times, yes. <laughs> great movie for Star Wars and Star Trek fans. Ready Player One, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about because Carrington already mentioned it on that 
other podcast that he's on. That's actually where I heard about it from, but it's a fantastic book for anybody who like grew up in the 80s or just remembers the 80s fondly. And it's not just for gamers, but also computer geeks, people who remember the music and the TV shows of the era. There's tons of nostalgia, but it's not just thrown in haphazardly. It's actually part of the plot, and it's very important that the main character familiarizes himself with all this ancient culture because the book is set in the 2040s. So I highly recommend it to all the geeks listening to this show. Great. I can't wait. Well, let's get down to business, and enough with the gaming and the pop culture. Let's talk Apple II. And Mike, I believe this is episode number 10, correct? Um, I think so. Yes. And that means that we are about to close out our first calendar year of publishing. Yay! Woohoo! <laughs> we made it through 2011. Certainly a lot longer than I thought we'd make it. <laughs> That's not true. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're right. You told me when you bought that microphone that you're using now that you were planning on doing this for a long time. I plan to do this until the day I die. I plan to do it until the day you die. Excellent. It won't be long now. <laughs> the way you live, I'm not so sure. <laughs> but since we are going to continue doing this, we want to make sure we're doing it right. And so we are asking our listeners to complete a brief survey that we have posted to our website. It's just a few questions, takes less than two minutes to fill out. It's mostly multiple choice. And we just want to know what's the appropriate length for an episode of this show. What's your favorite segment? What kind of guests do you want to see on the show? Where online do you want us to have presences so you can talk with us? between episodes and find out about new episodes when they air things like that it doesn't take long we may or may not have a fabulous prize for people who submit non-anonymous surveys in fact we will have a prize it's just the fabulous part i'm not so sure about and speaking of what kind of guests you'd like to see on the show i want to briefly mention one of our former guests peter newbauer who was on the show in april has recently embarked on a fantastic adventure he is turning his life mobile for the next two years and i don't mean a cell phone i mean trading his house for a van. He's going to be living out of his van for the next two years, and he's blogging all about equipment that he's using, the outfitting that he's doing on the van, and where he's going to go in those two years, including Kansas Fest. You can read all about it at adventuretrek.com. There will be a link in the show notes. Very exciting. Yeah, I am not sure that's something I could do. I mean, where would I put my Apple II? Yeah, that uh, well, with the appropriate tie-down straps. I mean, you could, I guess you could bolt it to a counter in the van. I suppose you could, but you have to leave room for all the essentials, too, if you're going to be living out of this thing. And this is no mobile home. This is a van. By essentials, of course, you mean image writer, diskettes, that sort of thing. Right. You know, I mean, you can always sleep on the roof. Sure. Right. In fact, last I heard, Peter, as part of his peripatetic experience, had made his way to Oceanside, California, and was staying with Tony Diaz. I'm sure we're all looking forward to seeing Peter wherever he may be. So good luck, Peter. I hope you make it to your friendly local Apple II users neighborhood soon. Yeah, and if you head through Colorado, make sure to look me up, Peter. This is Vince Briel, and you are listening to the Open Apple Podcast. One of the great things about doing the Open Apple Podcast is that we get to talk to some of the best and greatest minds in the Apple II community, and this month is no different. Please join me in welcoming Rob Kenyon. Hi, Rob. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mike. Rob, I'm thrilled that you could join us. I know you had a little bit of a difficulty with the scheduling. What was the conflict? The real thing was to make sure I was available for you guys. You know, I work a normal job as a programmer, and sometimes getting away from all the people that want my attention is a little bit difficult. So I wanted to make sure that when I got here, I was dedicated to it, much like Kansas Fest. So when you're programming your day job, I assume that's the next greatest Apple II emulator, right? Uh, not this week. Unfortunately, people don't pay for that too much. <laughs> they should. 
So you mentioned Kansas Fest, and that's actually where I first met you in person, was at Kansas Fest 2010, and as with all the first-timers from that year, you came back in 2011, but you've been a member of the online Apple II community for eons, it seems like. Uh, I've actually been dealing with Apple II since 1979, uh, after begging my parents for multiple months and fighting with Commodore Pets in high school, or Yes, it was high school. Boy, that long ago. <laughs> I ended up with an Apple II Plus and it pretty much got me going and determined that I could actually do this and do it well. And what is do this? Program. Ah, okay. That's what I do. Creation is the thing. So you've been using the Apple II consistently since 79? Not at all. <laughs> Unfortunately, I ran into uh, Unix in college and, you know, it's a little bit different and trying to make Unix work on an Apple II was really, really tough. Don't, doesn't mean we didn't try, but... Well, there is no me for the Apple II, right? Right. And that didn't suit your needs? It actually came out after I left college. Oh. Yeah, that's how old I am. Because I remember when I got to college, I had never used anything but an Apple II, and all of a sudden, we were expected to be compiling all these programs in a shell that we were telnetting into. So I thought, well, there's a Unix for the Apple II. Maybe I can just install that in Bernie to the rescue. And I tried, but wasn't quite exactly what the professors were looking for. It's hard to explain to them, look, I'm using this. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they just don't bend very well. <laughs> no, academia has, uh, they can be very rigorous in their standards. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't use my Apple II with the 80-column card and all that and my 300-baud modem to uh, dial into those mainframes and do the things I needed to do because getting a terminal was terrible. So... So when you say that you haven't used the Apple II consistently, was there a period of absence after which you came back? And if so, what brought you back? I can't really say what brought me back. It just seemed like the right thing to do. I hadn't had an Apple II for a really long time. I really, when I stopped using my Apple II Plus, I was really depressed because it was starting to get a little too flaky for my taste. When I wanted to start it up and play a game, it just was not reliable. And it just killed me. And uh, it just made me cry, basically. So uh, that kind of caused me to stop being there for a while. And uh, at the time, I was married, and we just had a baby and everything else. So I, I was emotional, I guess. I just came back to it because I really missed the GS. Uh, I was working in an Apple store, not an Apple store store, but an Apple retailer when the GS came out. And it was amazing, except software was horrible. The original GS and the software it showed off, it didn't show off any of the features of the machine. It wasn't as impressive as it could have been. But I came back and found GSOS and all the things that the guys out of Europe had done. And wow, I just, I really wanted to get one of those and see what I could do with it. Yeah, a lot happened when you weren't looking. Definitely. So do you consider yourself a predominantly 16-bit Apple II user nowadays? Uh, I would say that. I love the old 8-bit, but, you know, I... Sometimes you need a little bit more. Are you doing this on the metal or via emulation? Yes. <laughs> uh, primarily metal, but I will go to emulation when I figure out that, man, this compile is going to take too long. Yeah, there are times when having a 40 megahertz Apple II can be very handy. Yeah, and I'll tell you, anytime you look at uh, an accelerator for a GS, <coughs> those numbers are just so high that... Uh, I'm afraid of trying to get one and, and do it. So really, an emulator is the... Best way to, to stay in the mood uh, programming-wise. Yeah, it's the most affordable for sure. Rob, are you working on anything in particular? 
not at all. I've got lots of dreams. Reality keeps coming back to me. What does the community need? And I really don't think there's a solid place for that at this point. We get some things that people do that are great, but boy, and I'm looking to solve a problem or do something really cool, and I've not managed to come up with either one of those yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are still a lot of things the community needs, but the people who are equipped to fulfill those needs is few. So, Rob, what was it that made you finally break down and come to Kansas Fest? I think it was fear that this wonderful thing that had been going on for a long time might go away, and not participating at least once just wasn't an option for me. I really needed to be part of the community at least once before it went away. And Kansas Fest will eventually go away. What? And that is a legitimate reason to go to Kansas Fest. It's what got me to go to my first one all the way back in 98. And me too in 2005. And Rob in 2010. And we haven't had our last one yet, and I hope we don't for a while. Yeah, me too. Is that what also brought you back in 2011, Rob, was the fear not at all. The second time, uh, the truth is when I walked in the first time in 2010, it was uh, awesome. All these people incredibly in love with the Apple II license plates and, and everything. It's, it's kind of weird. It's really scary. Here I am in another state, you know, thousands of miles from home. I only know these people from conversations on websites. This is not a good thing. This is a bad movie mm -hmm. kind of thing. <laughs> Everybody was so nice and welcoming, and all of us had strange quirks that were exposed pretty quickly. I found I was in a comfortable place, and I got through the first one and still was kind of in shock. 2011 showed up, and I realized, you know, I feel for this just like I did summer camp. If I didn't go, I'd miss it. I really wanted to go, and I could be one of the people that was welcoming and, and help and participate and, and do more. I didn't do as much as I wanted to do, but, you know, the community was willing for to take whatever I had, and that was awesome. And what was it we took from you, Rob, besides your Kansas Fest <laughs> virginity? And your innocence and your youth. And... My 3 a.m. programming sessions that yeah. uh, caused me to get really tired when <laughs> 9 o'clock in the morning rolled up and it was time to go to the next session. <laughs> no wonder you were so cranky. Yeah, I'm a cranky kind of guy. I just ask the guys I work with. No, I'm just kidding. When you talk about contributing to the community, are you going to be giving any sessions at KFest 2012? That is my hope. Some things are going on with my daughter who lives in Alaska that uh, might stop me from, from being able to make it, and that would be terrible. I, I do have a plan for a session, and I do need to get to it, as uh, somebody famous would say. And Ryan Suenaga, just do it. Your Apple II family will always be there for you, but I think you got to put your real family first. And that's why. Uh, she's graduating from high school, so... Congratulations. Oh, that's neat. Hey, you mentioned geeks showing up to Kansas Fest with license plates. I'm asking people to vote on a poll that I have uh, for the best Apple II-inspired license plate that's valid and available in the state of Massachusetts. It's on my Apple II Bits blog, and if you haven't already seen it, I recommend you just take a moment and go vote. It's going to be up for another week or so. I think it'd be really cool to have a license plate that says something like KFest or ProDOS or 2GS, but there are just so many good ones, it's hard to choose one. Yeah, the initial list it was actually stunning. Uh, I went through it, and I, only five? Come on, let me do 10, 15, and here's three more. <laughs> well, one of my coworkers said, Ken, you seriously put up a poll with 42 choices, and you expect people to look through that and cast serious votes? I'm like, yeah, these are geeks. They take things intensely. 
It's the Apple II community. Come on, we're dedicated. Right. But for this last round, it's only one vote for nine choices. Yeah, it wasn't any better. And even I haven't voted yet because I can't figure it out. Now, one last question, Rob. When we invited you on the show, you seemed a little bit intimidated. Why is that? Well, one of my concerns was, do I contribute enough to be interesting to the community? I don't think so. But <laughs> after our conversations, I realized I do. I, I, I do do things. I am involved. I know all the people. That's reasonable. And because your schedules are so tight, I wanted to make sure that your time was effective as well. So there was some concern about when we would record, and I wanted to make sure that I was really available to be here and really do it right. So you doubted the wisdom of our guest selection? You actually thought that after all our deliberation, Mike and I had made a bad choice? Hell, I thought you just went through your Skype list and said, please. <laughs> That's what I did. I rolled some <laughs> dice, actually. So I don't know. We've read the tea leaves. No, I think you're a pretty cool guy. You're a Kansas fester. You are a programmer. You are a contributor to JuiceGS. You submitted that piece a couple of years ago about how it influenced your job and your career. And the fact that when you showed up to Kansas Fest, you may not have known anybody in person, but not only did you know them from online, but they all knew you. I mean, I, I saw a couple of guys looking at you saying, who's this guy? And you went up and you said, hi, I'm Rob Kenyon. Just a completely blank look. And then you said, you know, wholly mindless. And they're like, oh, hey, how you been? It's great to see you. Yeah, that was great. I enjoyed that tremendously. So yeah, you are definitely a member of this community and we're glad to have you. So thank you for your time. I appreciate it. It's nice to have a family, basically. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. Alex Lee uh, of what is the 2GS website where he's got a, the archive of all the Apple 2GS software and manuals and box covers. It's a really neat site. I'm sure all of our listeners have been there uh, many times. He recently went to France. He met up with a couple of other famous Apple II users. The, the gentleman from Brutal Deluxe, Antoine and Olivier Zardini, and I, and they showed him around, and it looks like he had a really good time. Um, so if you're interested, check that article out. Yes, they also did some FaceTime with Bill Martins, who's over in Japan. Oh, that's right. Yeah, mm -hmm. It's a great write-up. You really should read it. Uh, it comes back to the community that I was talking about and how we find that the KFES-style getting together is not just in Kansas. It's also in France. It's amazing. Yeah, that was my experience this summer. I was doing a lot of driving around the country, and outside of Kansas Fest, I got to see, let's see, Thomas Compter, Andy Malloy, uh, Max Jones, Sean Fahey, Mike Who? McGinnis, Greg Nelson, Ed Eastman, Dane Nieder, Scott Miller, Andy Malloy again. <laughs> and then just last month, as I mentioned on the show, I saw Andy Malloy and Peter Watson. It's just great that having an Apple II is like, a membership card that you can flash anywhere and you immediately gain a friend. I remember Antoine talking about, I think it was summer of 2010, that a bunch of FTA developers got together for an event that they called the Worms Party. I'm not sure why they called it Worms. I don't think they actually wrote that game, Worms. But it seemed like quite the reunion. It seemed like a fun time. I wish that there were more international Kansas Fests, like Euro Kansas Fest, as oxymoronic as that seems. Andrew Rowan put together a Mount Kira Fest back in 2009, I believe, which was an Australian Apple II gathering that coincided with Kansas Fest. So we were actually able to chat internationally while the two events were occurring at the same time. Sort of. Yeah, there were some technical difficulties. We did eventually get it working for a minute, I think. 
Yeah, as much as I think everybody should travel from any point in on the globe to come to Kansas Fest, I understand that's not feasible either for finances or scheduling. So I wish that people could get together locally with their Apple II users. Like, um, Mike, you briefly met my friend Sarah, and you also took a picture of me holding her Apple II in an apple orchard. I did, yes. Which later ended up on Cult of Mac. That's right. You didn't tell me that you were publishing pictures of me on the World Wide Web. Easier to get forgiveness than permission. That's true. Sarah is now, thanks to our delivery of her Apple II, a bona fide Apple II user, and she's been playing all these great games that she had as a kid or even wrote. She and I recently spent two hours together last week turning all her discs into disc images, courtesy ADT Pro, so that now she has backups of these stuff and also... I can easily access them on my emulator. Not that I would for any of her commercial games, but for the stuff that she wrote that was original. I think that's a cool and easy way for her to distribute them. Well, now I remember when when we drove the Apple II to her, the the floppy drive didn't survive, and she emailed me, and I didn't have a chance to get back to her. It sounds like her drive is working again. Well, she and I went in together on some new floppy drives on eBay. Ah. Uh, so we each have working drives now. Okay. How did the drive not make it? Did you, like, leave it at a rest stop or something? <laughs> we found some very imaginative uses for it in the middle of Des Moines, yeah. <laughs> no, the, we brought the drive to her. It's just that it didn't work anymore. Yeah, sometimes that happens with its old equipment. But you still <laughs> love it. The sound is amazing. It was, what, 2,000 miles on the road. I'm sure the vibrations didn't help it very much. And also been sitting in her parents' basement for about 15 years. And there's that, too. There's that. And- and you said she wrote code? She wrote programs? Come on. I want links. The programs haven't been distributed. That's fine. Not, not distributed is okay, but if it's been distributed, we'd like to see it. I'll let her know that. I'm not sure <laughs> what it is she wrote. It may have just been in basic. It may have been an email adventure. I'm not sure it worked, but I will pass along your request to her. Even so, we'd love to see it. I mean, anybody programming, we want to encourage because this is where programming started. Mm-hmm. This is where, you know, we didn't have the luxury of messing with uh, vacuum tubes and things. This is our start. Well, one of the treasures that I found in her floppy collection was a version of Adventure, the original text adventure game, but the splash screen is branded with the Denver Apple Pie users group that Mike and I went to this summer. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know there were localized versions of Adventure like that. I didn't either. I had emailed... Denver Apple Pie, and they said, yep, that's ours, and now that I have a disc image of it, I think I'll send it along to them and say, Here, here's a disc that you distributed 25 years ago, in case you want it back. Nice. Yeah, pass it on to the next person. I was browsing the old interwebs the other day, and I came across an article. And I, now, I saw this on Bloomberg, actually, but it looks like it was excerpted from Computer World. Your organization, Ken, uh, they, they ran this article about uh, Sotheby's is going to auction off Apple's founding contract on the 13th of December. Uh, this is a three-page document that was signed by the three original founders, uh, the two Steves and Ronald Wayne. And it looks like they are expecting for this to fetch around $150,000. Just for a scrap of paper. Three scraps of paper. Right. That wouldn't surprise me if this ended up in that uh, Italian uh, museum along with the $213,000 Apple One. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that gentleman who bought it from Christie's last year. Right. I guess there's some speculation that, that Apple itself might actually be bidding on this because it's it's no longer in their possession. This is a, a private collector that's that's auctioning this off. I'd like to know the trail that this 
piece of paper has followed to end up at this auction. Why did it ever leave the possession of Steve Jobs, Steve Wozniak, or Ron Wayne? Yeah, you would think that this is, you know, if nothing else, a significant document in Apple's history. Mm-hmm. Right. It belongs to them. Right. I mean, not just philosophically, but I would think almost legally. Almost legally. Yeah, when they get uh, incorporated, that document would have become superfluous. Yeah, that's true, because they type type up an actual legal document when they file for incorporation. Because hmm. a lawyer would be involved somewhere. Right. I, I wonder if this is, is like, you know, the, the sunken treasure that these, these guys find on, on ships, you know, or if, if you find a, a ship that went down 100 years ago and it's got all this gold on it, the gold is pretty much yours. Sort of like a statute of limitations thing? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I'm not but, sure how that works. I mean, there there is still art being found that was lost in World War II, which is returned. I don't know if maybe it's being returned just as a sign of good faith or if it's a legal mandate, but... Hmm. What do I know? I'm not a lawyer. Yeah, where does where does ownership begin and end on stuff like that? And it looks like in the computer world story there is a partial scan of one of the pages. Yeah, I think I mean it was either Bloomberg or another site actually had scans of all three pages. They weren't full size and I don't think I don't remember being able to actually read the text or anything. But, but it'd be nice if whoever bought it actually did do full high resolution scans of all three pages and put them online. Well, maybe we could pool our resources. Let's see. I have uh, two nickels, a stick of gum, and some lint. How far will that go? I have a stick of chapstick and my Droid X phone. Rob? I think I, I, think I have a dime. Well, we're on the way. But I'm saving it to call mom. <laughs> oh, man. Why, don't you have a blue box to do that? <laughs> it doesn't work anymore. Waz oh. won't give me support. Now, come to find out that this is actually an April Fool's joke from last year. Before Jobs disappeared, Roz and Jobs and Ron Wayne got back together and wrote this up just to drive people nuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Steves were definitely pranksters. Especially Wozniak. Yeah. I wouldn't put this past him. Another ancient Apple document recently got unearthed. Chris Espinoza, who has been with Apple almost since the beginning, he's their longest running employee. He's employee number eight and he's been with the company almost since its founding. He was recently presented with a piece of paper that somebody had found at Apple and said, hey, do you recognize this? And Chris said, why, yes, I drew that 30 years ago. It was a floor plan for an office that Apple was expanding into at the address of uh, 10260 Banley Drive, fondly referred to as Banley 1, Chris says, among Apple employees. And this was going to be part of their new office. It didn't last for long because they quickly outgrew it, as Apple was doing at that time. It's neat to look at, though, because there is a... About a quarter of the floor plan for this office is simply labeled tennis courts. Hmm. So even at that time, Apple was thinking luxuriously. Chris does explain his blog post. That's because they didn't know what they were going to put there, so they just filled it in with something random while they figured it out. Uh, what I loved was looking at that and thinking, this is where all the stuff from folklore.org got written. When you talk about Bandley One, and to see that it's you know basically a office space that you could rent now for a thousand bucks a month. Yeah, I mean, this thing is not huge. It fits maybe a dozen people. And Steve Weirich pointed out to me that I somehow had missed this detail, that Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak are on opposite ends of the building. <laughs> yeah, well, management and uh, engineering never really mixed that well. I love the discussions about who worked for whom. Yeah. Who's this person? <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Actually, Chris goes through on his blog post and names each person. Because on the floor plan, it just says, you know, Jim or Gene or whatever. And then he goes in and says, actually, that's Jim Martindale. That's Gene Carter, etc. Hmm. Well, apparently, this was worked out after it was uh, produced. What do you mean? After the, he posted the document, people had come back and talked to him about it. Oh, and said, said, said this was me, and I sat there. Yeah, the communal memory came up gotcha. and helped fill in the holes. Yeah, yeah, for example. For example, uh, Chris didn't know who Clive was, and then Bill Fernandez said, that's Clive Twyman. And Chris is like, oh, hi, Bill. Hi, Clive. <laughs> last week, I, I think it was last week's Retro MacCast, uh, they had a review of the green, the, the brand new Apple Design book. And this is a, a hardcover book from a German uh, publisher. My copy arrived about a week or so ago. I was looking through it, and it's it's this is definitely a, a coffee table uh, gee whiz, neat sort of a book. Uh, they go through, it starts in about 1997 when uh, Jobs returned to Apple and when Johnny Ive uh, was hired to take over Apple, the, the industrial design group. Uh, in 1997, uh, the first product that they cover is the 20th anniversary Mac and it comes all the way up through 2011 and finishes with the iPad 2. And it covers pretty much every Apple product uh, or at least product line that was released between 97 and 2011. So that does not include the Apple II? Uh, I'm afraid not, no. If you want that, you need to go back to the original Apple design book, the white one. The one by Paul Kunkel? Yes. Any relation to this book? Uh, it doesn't look like it, other than that this book kind of picked up right where that one left off. Hmm. Different photographer, different writers, different publisher. The uh, Retro MacCast guys did a really good review on, on the book and, and go in, in depth. Uh, if you want to learn more about that. But you can pick it up at Amazon for about $40, which is definitely a lot cheaper than the original Apple design book, which I think you can buy used for hundreds of dollars now. But even this new Apple design book, the street price on that is 60 bucks. Is it? Yes, that's the MSRP. Amazon oh, yes. has it price marked down to uh, 37.80. Gotcha. And really, with the state of books nowadays, you should never pay the full price for anything. <laughs> Coming from a publisher, that sounds painful. Well, I'm a magazine publisher, and we actually give our magazine up for free. Is that why I paid for my JuiceGS subscription? Oh, JuiceGS. I thought you were talking about Computer World. Sorry, no. JuiceGS is priceless, and you should pay any amount you can for that. That's right. <laughs> no, really, I was talking about book publishing. Books are very often marked up, and Barnes and & Noble and Borders, well, formerly Borders, they always price mark things back down, and there are coupons and discounts and sales and pre-orders. Magazines are a completely different beast. Definitely. Um, I have heard that this book does contain some great um, essays from designers, and apparently they're definitely worth the reading. Yeah, the the first, I don't know, third of the book maybe is basically yeah what, what you mentioned, uh, a lot of interviews and, and essays uh, from industrial designers, from engineers. You know, there's a lot of talk about the designer, the German designer Dieter Rams, uh, who worked for Braun in the 60s, um, and his influence on Johnny Ive and how the rules that Dieter had, there are a bunch of them listed here in the book, um, influenced, uh, Johnny and Steve Jobs. You know, when I was at the Denver Art Museum this summer, in the modern design section, they actually had a Macintosh cube. It was a G4 cube. Yep. Is that the one that had all the cracks in the case? That's what happened to it. It was. It did have some design flaws, including cracks, but the Power Mac G4 cube, most people thought, if not functionally, was 
aesthetically a work of art and i wasn't surprised to see it in the denver art museum although i was surprised to see it right next to a pair of ski boots that's denver what are you gonna do come on it's not the moma Kansas Fest 2010, we had a panel discussion about how new machines weren't the same as the old machines. When you had an Apple II or even one of the other inferior machines, you had to generally program it to do what you wanted it to do, or at least you had to know enough to make it do what you wanted. It wasn't just turn it on and watch TV type stuff. And there was some concern that the iPad and the iPhone were taking that away from users and not letting them be the users of the machine, the owners of the machines. There's a recent discussion uh, through Slashdot about the fact that somebody is trying to claim that Steve Jobs killed HyperCard. And it turns out that they're thinking that it was the exact same reason that he was trying to convert people from creators and developers to consumers and users, uh, not users <laughs> traditionally, but users of the appliance. And I just don't see that, but, you know, there's always some truth in any rumor. Do you guys have any opinions on that? I don't. I never used HyperCard. I'm not a veteran of HyperCard itself, but the proposal that these readers are making that HyperCard was part of a larger movement to distinguish users from programmers and make the computer into an appliance. I can see how it would have had that, that effect, but I'm not sure I can confidently say that it was the reason it happened. Right. From a user standpoint, from a, a user a GUI standpoint, HyperCard was really the closest thing to, to basic on these systems. And apparently some people are really thinking that by removing that from these systems, it, it took the tool out of the machine to turn it into an appliance. Personally, I just don't think that anybody had that much forethought. Well, also, there was nothing stopping anyone else from making a HyperCard-like program. Granted, it wouldn't be bundled with the OS like something from Apple would, but Apple never said, we're killing HyperCard and everything like it. No, but on the other hand, they certainly didn't make development for the Macintosh easy. It was It didn't come with any any kind of development tools built in, and it was it was very hard to get development software for the Macintosh for a long, long time. With 128K, you weren't going to do much of anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it took Alisa to write software for the original Mac. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a heavy commitment. The stories about uh, how hardware came about for the actual original OS, you know, you, you understand just how much work this was. These guys don't have the tools we have today. Vince Brewer, you know, the, the emulations and pretending as he does, the tools he has today, are, it's easier. It's still crazy, but it's easier than when you had to get a $10,000 machine. And this is in $1984. I mean, that's a significant commitment. You seem rather passionate about this. It's all about development. You know, you got to write code. You got to have something you really want to exist. You breathe life into it and then you let it go. You have to put it in front of people. It has to be either for sale or whatever, but it has to get in front of people. And that's what uh, Sheppy does. And, and that's where Ryan grasped this, that it had to get it delivered before it really became a completed thing. And the joy of delivering that and seeing people use it and enjoy it is amazing. So if you haven't written a program or, or even a great document that people read, you know, you really need to do it because that creation is really amazing. 
and you're saying that the Macintosh does not empower people to do that like the Apple II did? We're saying that the concern is that it's really not a concern. The statement is uh, that HyperCard brought that ability to more normal people, <laughs> more regular people, and that it was mm. killed on purpose to turn these things from tools into appliances. Well, I think that was always Steve Jobs' goal from pretty much the very beginning. It's documented that he would quibble with Woz over, you know, whether the machine should include expansion slots at all, you know, how accessible it should be to the user. So, I mean, going all the way back, this is where Jobs was, was driving. This was his, part of his, his grand vision for Apple. So maybe this uh, theory isn't all that wrong. But does it really matter? No, we could have written it. We had it available. It was available on other platforms. In fact, there was, uh, I can't remember, maybe we need to look it up, but it, apparently HyperCard-like stuff was available on other systems. You know, it really didn't have to go away. Well, like the article says, anything that has been once can be again. That's entirely up to somebody else to recreate HyperCard. And, and really, when you look at it, HyperCard in the web, it's a lot like it. Uh, putting up a website is not a hard thing to do, and uh, HyperCard was just simply a local web server. So there's no reason to stop you. Develop. There are still machines that can run HyperCard. There's nothing to stop you from creating new stacks. Or you can even do it in your emulator. Right. Fortunately, HyperCard isn't the only environment in which to make new software for the Apple II. Uh, Seth Sternberger and his partner Michelle who together formed the musicians 8-Bit Weapon and Compute Her. I've never really understood if 8-Bit Weapon is the name of Seth or the name of their group collectively. Regardless, they have created a drummer program for the Apple II because the group 8-Bit Weapon performs in the genre of chiptune, which uses classic hardware, anything from an Apple II to a Game Boy or whatever, as their instruments. So this DMS drummer software that they call it is one of their latest tools that they're making available to others. They created this in collaboration with Michael J. Mann, with whom they previously worked on the DMS music software. Both of these programs can be found on their website for $15 for the 5 and a quarter inch disc format or $10 for the disc image. And there is also a nice YouTube video demonstrating the drummer program in action. And it creates some pretty good uh, background tunes that you can mix in with some other instruments to make some neat chiptune music. Cool. Michael's posts about the product are, are very interesting, so it's worth reading how he did some things for it that are very specific to music. It's a really interesting read. And where do you find those? Michael posted on his website in his blog about oh, okay. the release and uh, some of the troubles with emulators not doing it exactly right, but boy, it sounds great on the real hardware which is exactly what they need for a uh, performance tool. Right. I didn't even know Michael had a blog. Uh, I swear I found it on my RSS. Shall I look it up real quick? No, I, I'm on his website now. and he The very first link on his site is DMS Drummer. But Right, oh, I see. On his website, there is a demo version that you can download for free. It's a disk image. I didn't know that. And apparently, it doesn't save. Yeah, it's limited to eight distinct programmable patterns, and the save function is disabled, as you just said. And the full version is available for purchase from the 8-Bit Weapon Store. But that's really cool. If you have ever met Michael at Kansas Fest, he brought his Apple Crate, which is about a dozen Apple II CPUs networked together in an example of parallel processing. And he used them to perform some pretty cool music, so it's not surprising to me that he would be applying his specialty to a program like this. 
I've been a big fan of 8-Bit Weapon ever since they were first interviewed on Chatterbox, which is a video game podcast I've been listening to forever. That interview occurred back in 2005 and eventually led to 8-Bit Weapon being interviewed in Juice GS. I've been trying to get them to come to Kansas Fest, but they're professional musicians and they aren't necessarily going to go out of their way to perform for a small crowd that can't offer them a lot of financial incentive. Got to see if we can get the Commodore 64 group in Kansas to uh, Kansas City to join us for an evening of music. Well, that's just it. I think if we opened up the concert to more than just Kansas Fest, to the larger retro computing community in the metro area, I bet that there would be enough people to justify a concert. But that's still something that you need to plan for well in advance. You need to take into consideration travel costs. 8-Bit Weapon had their own Kickstarter a while back, and one of the incentives for donating at a certain level was your own concert. I think like maybe $5,000 and they'll do a Skype concert for you, $10,000 and they'll do it live. I wish somebody at Kansas Fest had been able to put together that kind of money, but I certainly didn't expect anybody to. It just would have been nice. Last month, we talked a little bit about Daniel Kotke and how he had been showing up all over the place since the death of Steve Jobs because he was one of... Uh, Jobs' closest friends early on in the 70s when they traveled around India and at Reed College. A couple of weeks ago, he appeared on the Twit Network's Triangulation podcast, and he sat down with Leo Laporte and Tom Merritt for about an hour and talked about the biography and offered some insight and some memories of Steve Jobs. So if you have a chance, definitely download that podcast and give it a listen. Have you done so? I have, yep. How was it? There was some some discussion about, you know, I guess Steve Jobs thought that because he only ate fruit and vegetables that, that he didn't stink and, and wouldn't have to take showers or anything like that. And Atari, who he was working for at the time, disagreed rather strongly and made him work night shifts because he smelled so bad. Dan sort of said, no, that, that actually wasn't true. But then again, if you're a stinky hippie, can you smell another stinky hippie? I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if Jobs was put on the night shift, but just simply because he didn't get along with anybody. Yeah, that's kind of what Dan sort of alluded to, is that it was probably more that he kind of had a, has an abrasive personality and just didn't get along with people. He also talked about the uh, the stock option um, fiasco, I guess, if you want to call it that, where Kotke is he's employee number 12 on their logs, but he was actually the first Apple employee to receive a paycheck. Uh, he was with them in the garage, um, and then he kind of went off to college and came back, and that's how he got number 12 uh, instead of number 2 or 3 or whatever. And he talked about being sort of screwed out of the, the stock options, and, and he said, first of all, he didn't even know about it until like 10 years later after it had happened. And then he explained that, while well, he was a technician, and at pretty much any company like that, engineers get the stock options and technicians don't. So it really wasn't jobs specifically trying to screw over Kotke or anything like that. It's just that's how companies work with technicians and engineers. So it wasn't personal. And he he didn't actually feel all that bad about it because I guess Waz gave him quite a bit of stock later on. I wonder if he would have felt worse if Waz hadn't been so generous. I don't know. It's interesting. He said it and there seemed to be maybe some sort of incident that happened that Dan wasn't really willing to talk about too much. But at some point, Steve just simply stopped talking to Dan and wouldn't acknowledge him, and, and Dan couldn't get in to see him anymore. And that was one of the reasons that he ended up leaving Apple, is he just didn't feel comfortable there anymore. Did Dan uh, agree with the uh, 
book. Yeah, he said overall it was, it was a really good book, and, and most of what was written that, that he was there for and, and observed and witnessed, that was accurate. Rob, have you read the Steve Jobs biography yet? I have not. I'm a little afraid of what I'll find. <laughs> it's on my wish list for the holiday season. I'm a little intimidated by its length. It's over 600 pages, isn't it? It is, but it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty easy read. Good. Now, you know, I fear that I know many of the things, but I also fear that, you know, I'm just not going to like the guy and it's going to hurt me emotionally to think that, you know, one of the great guys that helped make something neat well, wasn't really as cool as I thought. If you if you liked Steve before, you're still going to like him. And if you didn't like him, this isn't going to change your mind. I mean, <laughs> the stories about Jobs being a jerk are pretty much well known. There's, I don't think there are a whole lot of shocking revelations this isn't this wasn't written by you know, the national Enquirer or something like that yeah from one of the reviews that i've read what the book does is confirm the negative stories but also develops a more well-rounded character that isn't just the villain who earns the headlines you get to see more of his personal life and the range of emotions as opposed to just the anger and the belittling. Yep, yep. I've heard there's some good discussion of his development and, and how he grew, which uh, is really probably the most important thing for us to take from this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's there's several pages dedicated to, you know, where he got the reality distortion field. And, you know, he wasn't always this charismatic sort of leader of men that he, he became. And they talk about where he got that and how that was developed. I came across a website recently. I don't mean this to be a political discussion, but I just want to briefly mention this website was asking people, who would you vote for for president, Obama or Jobs? <laughs> and at the moment, the votes were overwhelmingly in favor of Jobs, which I guess is kind of what this economy needs right now anyway. As we mentioned last month, documentarian Jason Scott succeeded in his Kickstarter campaign to fund three more documentaries at the price tag of $100,000. That's the expense to him, not necessarily to listeners who want to buy the DVDs when they come out in 2015. There will be three documentaries about classic arcades, the backup medium of tape, and the 6502 processor. Jason has started releasing details about these products. The 6502 in particular is of interest to Apple II users because that is the chip that powered the original Apple II. And you can find out more about the documentary at the6502.com. Specifically, the6502.com slash cast has a list of people that Jason wants to interview for this show. I don't think he's actually reached out to these people yet, but he is collecting names from his backers and readers of his blog. He is accepting submissions as well of people that he has not previously considered or noted. If you take a look at the people currently on his cast, he's divided them into seven categories. Designers, experts, makers, authors, emulators, and programmers. Oh, and sellers. And there are plenty of familiar names on there. For example, Vince Briel, Jerry Ellsworth, Tom Owad, Bill Budge, Dan Gorlin, John Romero, who will be at KFest 2012 as the keynote speaker, Richard Garriott, Bob Frankston of VisiCalc fame, Nasir Gabelli. I think I know that name. That's one. He's he was the programmer for the software company Sirius S I R I U S. He programmed a lot of their early classic hits, Plasmania, and some of those other ones. Oh, you know where I know his name from is the video game RPG series Final Fantasy. Hmm. He did a lot of work on that. Gotcha. Uh, but you're right. He also did Apple II stuff, which is why he's on the 6502 documentary. Mm -hmm. Yes. No Chuck Peddle. Chuck Peddle is on there. That's true. 
Good. I, I didn't at first mention his name because he's more of a C64 guy, but this documentary is not a, specifically about C64 or Apple II. It's the 6502, and of course, you're right. How can you have a 6502 documentary without Chuck Peddle? It's his chip. It's his heart. The stories that he has are awesome, and they need to be collected. Oh, he's not C64 at all, is he? He was with Commodore, and he was with Apple briefly, and then went back to Commodore. Yeah, he was with Moss at the time of the processor. Oh, and of course, Steve Wozniak. Who's that guy? Yeah. I don't know. I think he showed up to some K-Fest briefly. I heard he was dancing with the stars, too. Oh, that's what he's famous for. That's right. Rob, did you see the... I think it was... Uh, not Jimmy Fallon. Who's Isn't there another? Jimmy Kimmel. I think he did a spoof movie trailer for the movie Footloose. Oh, God, yes. I was terrified by it. <laughs> I would pay so much money to see that movie. It was hilarious, but scary at the same time. I won't ruin the surprise for our listeners, but there will be a link in the show notes. <laughs> Good. Um, I was kind of surprised by the travel calendar. There wasn't a lot in it. Um, it might be better to link the people he wants to contact. The calendar itself wasn't terribly interesting as something to look at yet. But it will get interesting as he starts to go visit people, I'm sure. Right, and in addition to the cast list, that he has his travel schedule. But this is his schedule primarily for collecting interviews over the next four years, and he hasn't even decided yet who he's going to be interviewing. So the Travel calendar isn't full yet, but there are some interesting things on there. Like I can see right now that for a week in February, Jason is going to be in Helsinki. Uh, there's no note on this Google calendar as to why he's there. And then he's going to be in Barcelona in May. But I think the point of this really is that if you know somebody in one of those geographic regions who has something to contribute to this documentary, or if you live in one of those regions and can afford to host Jason at your home for a night or two, drop him a line, and all those details will be in his blog post. And I'll tell you, hosting Jason Scott would be a dream. He is uh, an incredible person to meet and talk to. He is just a personality that you really need to see once in your life. Uh, I met him at KFAS 2011. And uh, there were times he was almost taking over the show, but there were other times that uh, when he was by himself that he was just uh, hilarious. Well, Rob, you said that hosting him would be a dream. I want to point out that meeting somebody and talking with them and living with them can be very different. Right, Mike? Indeed. There's another documentary that I came across by Patrick Rosencrantz. It's called Finders Keepers, The Heart of Collecting. Now, it's not specific to vintage computers or anything like that, but it's uh, it goes deep into kind of the, the motivations of people who collect and why they do it and, and how they go about it. Uh, and I ordered this for myself last week. Uh, it's a $20 DVD. It hasn't arrived yet, so I'm sure I'll have more to say about it next month when it shows up, but I've watched it. Uh, but Kickstarter is not the only website out there where you can start a project and raise funds. And in fact, there's this, another one that I found called Rocket Hub, and I found that because there is a project on there for a book called Project Ultima, The Ultimate Collector's Guide. According to the details, this is going to be an 800-page book covering highly detailed information and pictures for 502 main releases, 275 books and collectibles, and 143 miscellaneous items. Every Ultima game is covered in exhaustive detail, and they list it out, and it's every single Ultima game. Um, I actually ran into this uh, link a little bit earlier myself, and I was amazed at the level of detail going into this. This is a labor of love for anybody who <laughs> ever played Ultima. 
There is so much detail in here. It's so much information. Uh, I mean, I grew up in the early ones, and I left the scene before um, Ultima 3 came out, but Akalabeth, Ultima, Ultima 2, these games really helped me understand that these guys were moving in experience. You went from the basic application to these assembly language things, and things moved so much faster, and it was brighter, more noise and sound, and I had my mom to no end. But to see where they've taken it for this, uh, collection is cr incredible. Like Kickstarter, they have different levels, and for different levels of contribution, you get increasingly neater stuff, all the way up to $500. And if you contribute $500 or more, in addition to the book, uh, you get the 2007 Platinum Edition. They're only making 25 of these. They're autographed. They're individually numbered. 700 full-color pages bound in hand-stitched leather, adorned with a brass codex plaque and including a printed color copy of the 2012 addendum for the new editions. There are, uh, looks like there are a limit of three copies for that, and they've all been purchased. That's a shame, because in comparing that to the packaging of the original Ultimas, when you had a cloth map and, and all the, the things in your hand that go along with it to help make it more real, this book is like today's version of those things. It would be amazing to see it. If you want to play the uh, Ultima games, you know, there's a website called GOG.com, G-O-G, that uh, sells these older games without DRM. Yeah, it runs on less quality systems than Macs, but, you know, sometimes you have to do that to play the old games. But Ultima 1 through Ultima 7 are out there for uh, just a very small amount. So you can at least... Uh, play them on new systems. Well, those those GOG games, don't they run on DOSBox? They do, so it, it really so is that hard to get there. Well, so you can play it on your Macintosh then? Uh, you might be able to. By default, it will be a little funny because the installer wraps it up, but uh, mm. it, it shouldn't be impossible to get it there uh, because all the things you need should be in there. On the Mac, you just use a program called Boxer, which is a much nicer alternative to DOSBox. That's something that our former guest Kelvin turned us on to. That's right. We may have even mentioned good old games before, otherwise known as GOG, but they recently released a bundle that has all the different expansions and variations on Ultima 7, which was not an Apple II game, but if you want to see where the series went beyond the Apple II, Ultima 7 is often considered the pinnacle. Huh. And that is only $6 at the moment for Ultima 7 The Black Gate, Ultima 7 Forge of Virtue, Ultima 7 Part 2 Serpent Isle, and Ultima 7 Part 2 The Silver Seed. That's a pretty good price. And if you know GOG, you know that nothing is over $10 right now. So, you know, just go out, check them out. There's some great stuff out there. Ultima is one of many games that people have done screencasts of for YouTube. But just in the past week or two, there have been a variety of not just screencasts or demos, but also actual reviews on YouTube by Brian Peachy, who is a listener to this show. He's put up some really high-quality videos that aren't just captured off an emulator he's actually set up a camera in front of an actual apple II, and that doesn't get in the way like a lot of amateur videos i've seen he has a very professional setup and he shows us the games that he plays in real time as he talks about them yeah he's re he has reviewed thexter uh, dangerous dave goes nuts which is a john romero game gold rush and a bunch of others that i may have heard of but not actually seen before watching a screencast on the internet is one thing. It, it lets you see what the game looked like without actually playing it. But having 
Brian narrating while he's playing gives you a much better feel for the experience of playing the game without actually getting your hands on it. A lot of these are commercial games, so you can't legally get them easily anymore. I really enjoy vicariously experiencing them through him. And I'm really surprised at just how many of these videos he put up in a very short amount of time. I guess he put his Thanksgiving break to good use. He also has a video on various extensions and extras that you can add on to the GSOS, uh, different knits and desk accessories and the like. So it's not just games that he's doing. Regardless of which area your interests lie in, I recommend you subscribe to his YouTube channel. Nate. It sounds a lot like an episode of 1 Megahertz from Carrington Vanston, but with video. Right. If Carrington's podcast was a video podcast or a vodcast or whatever they call it, it might be a little bit like this. Although, I don't think you can really liken anybody's personality to Carrington's. Yeah, I was hoping. You know, we're American. We're not as good as him. That's right. <laughs> yes, but we have things for dinner other than bacon and maple syrup. I was thinking it actually sounded a lot like a, a games version of Matt's Macintosh. Hmm. I haven't listened to enough of Matt's Macintosh to say. He does a lot of uh, really high-quality videos of various Apple gear. Oh, maybe I have seen some of those, actually. Yeah. I think those are more highly produced and much more polished. Well, probably, but... Brian does do some editing. For example, if he gets stuck on a level or if he dies, he doesn't make you watch him replay it to get back to that point. He'll just cut out the redundant parts, which I appreciate. It's wonderful to hear people doing this because we really do need to capture this for people in the future. I mean, they're not going to have machines that can run it. When you talk about these machines and the prices some of them are going for now, it's just not going to be reasonable for, you know, like my kids to probably buy one. Thank God I'll give them mine. I would love to review old games in Juice GS, but in my opinion, that's just not a good use of the very valuable and very limited print space that the magazine has. I want to be talking about what's new and exciting in the Apple II community. Something like what Brian is doing on YouTube, perfect match. I agree. Juice GS is a, a very different audience and uh, i think it's appropriate to not go there because that's an easy thing to do it would be easy to schedule and get people to do the news is really what's important and and also collecting this new information when there's only 30 or 40 or 50 of us it really needs to be written down and and protected right and i'm what i'm saying is that what brian is doing is important too as you just said we're not always going to be able to run these games it's just finding the right content that matches the right medium. Definitely. Did you have any favorite games growing up, Rob, besides Ultima? I was a big fan of Load Runner. Uh, spent a lot of time killing the guys by dropping them in holes. And, of course, like I said, my mom was tired of those sounds pretty quickly. Yeah, one of mine was Choplifter, and I've mentioned before on this show that there's a new version that Dan Gorlin is involved with that's coming out for PS3. It's been delayed and delayed. It's supposed to come out in the fall, and then it's the winter. Some news did just come out about it recently two pieces of good news. One is that they have added Xbox to its distribution platform, and I have an Xbox, so I will be able to play it. And secondly, it's being developed by In Exile Entertainment, which was founded by Brian Fargo, formerly of Interplay, which we all knew, but now it's being published by Konami, which is a great company. They're one of the top-tier third-party publishers. They've done Silent Hill, Castlevania, Metal Gear Solid, all AAA titles. And actually, there is at least one Apple II user working at Konami. That would be Christopher Heck of Ninja Force. He's probably not going to be involved with this project, but I just want to mention that there is 
somewhere out in the ether a connection there. The exact date and price are still to be determined, so I don't have those details yet, but I expect it to be early in 2012. Hopefully it'll be as amazing as the original. Well, from what I understand, the desert is not purple anymore. Oh, man. But there is a zombie apocalypse from which you can rescue people. <laughs> because everything nowadays needs a zombie apocalypse. Well, and, and didn't they come up with a, an acronym for Choplifter now? Did, did they? Let me find that. Where'd that go? Well, this is called Choplifter HD, so maybe it's like CLHD. No, they, they turned the, the chop part of Choplifter into something. And, of course, I can't find it. Never mind. Okay. Oh, wait, yeah. Yeah, it's it's the Chopper CHOPR Coordinated Helicopter Operations Preservation and Rescue. Oh, neat. Yep. CHOPR? Yeah. Players take on the role of an up-and-coming rescue pilot asked to join the elite international helicopter rescue team, Chopper. Somehow they turned it into a first-person shooter like everything else. <laughs> yes, they did. I don't think the helicopter had a name previously. In the Sega Master System version of the game, it was called the Hawk Z, oh. which, you know, is pretty generic. So, yet again, they've rechristened the vehicle. Interesting. Well, the vehicle, yeah, the vehicle hasn't been rechristened. It's the rescue organization that you're part oh, of. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I got that wrong. You can just chop all of that out. Ha, <laughs> I get it. Chop. See what I did there? I see what you did there. Mm -hmm. Well, another popular genre of gaming is text adventures, which we've talked about before, and there's been some recent developments there, although, again, it's tangential to the Apple II. Wade Clark, a listener to this show, hi Wade, has previously participated in the annual Interactive Fiction Competition, or IF Comp. Last year, he won the Golden Banana of Discord for his entry, which was Leadlight, an Eamon adventure for the Apple II. He is back in the 2011 Interactive Fiction Competition, which actually closed a couple of months ago, but it's just now that they've announced the winners. Apparently, when Wade came in about 16th last year, I think he didn't come in higher because people were rating him not on the quality of his gaming or scripting or development, but probably because of the platform he was working on. When I interviewed him for GCS, he said a lot of people just didn't know how to use these retro computers and didn't appreciate the interface and the cumbersome technology that they had to work with to play the game. This year, he taught himself the interactive fiction development language in Form 7. He wrote his first game in that. He wrote a game in that called Six, and this year, out of 38 entries, he came in second. Woo! Congratulations. That's amazing. Yeah, I think it's a great development for an Apple II user to have made. I always miss this every year. I feel bad that uh, I don't get in on it on time to, to check them out myself before they're voted, because, you know, this is really the early development on the Apple II before we figured out how to use high-res. Yeah, and a lot of these games are still fun. I mean, text adventures are not just a genre that you engage in when you don't have technology for anything better. It is a fascinating and legitimate art form that people are doing some amazing things with even today. And these things are hard. Yeah. I mean, it's not just a, you know, you don't just walk around a corner and die or anything, although sometimes that happens. These things really make you think, and, and they're very interesting because they can get you in your head and and make you think about how you feel about things. And that's really hard to do in, you know, Angry Birds. <laughs> yeah, Angry Birds. Oi. There was another Apple II user who purchased in this year's Interactive Fiction Competition. Andrew Schultz was a playtester for Wade's game, but he also contributed his own game, which came in 27th. It's called Fan Interference. The description reads, 
As a kid in 1984, you were helpless to stop the Cubs' National League Championship Series collapse against the Padres. In 2003, the Cubs are about to blow it again, unless you get in their way, without, well, getting in their way. So it's a baseball interactive fiction game. Uh, as I mentioned, Andrew came in 27th, and his prize was a subscription to Juice GS. Andrew is a prolific author of frequently asked questions or game facts, which you can find online for Apple II. So if you ever get stuck in an Apple II game and you need to know what to do next, chances are you've consulted one of his text files. Nice to know that he doesn't just strategize about games, but he also writes them as well. So congratulations to Wade and Andrew. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. But wait, I'm not done talking about games. You're not? No. But wait, there's more. Oh my god. The eBay section of the Open Apple Podcast gives me the opportunity to tell you about an auction that Sean Fahey linked me to, which is for a lot, and they mean both an auction lot and a ton of, Microzines. I love Microzine. It is a edutainment periodical on disc published by Scholastic in the 80s. And this is a lot for 20 individual issues of Microzine. That's a lot. Including the discs? Yes, the discs, the sleeves. There's a photo here. It looks like he has all the original material. And he's asking for a buy it now price of $120. Is that a good price? It's about 12 bucks each. And I've seen Microzines going for a lot more. And I've seen them going for less. So I guess for the lot, it's pretty good. The only problem I have is that I think I have several of these already. And so to pick out the ones I don't already have and pay 120 bucks for all of them, that would be a challenging investment to justify. Well, you could resell the ones you already have on eBay. That's true. I actually had not thought of that. Yeah, but since he's the guy who'd have to buy them. That's right. He'd just sell them to himself. <laughs> Make it up in volume. I was playing a microzine last week that I hadn't played in literally 20 years, and it's really it's a unique experience to revisit a game that you remember so vividly and yet it's so different now because you're different the game hasn't changed the hardware hasn't changed but your expectations about what gaming should be is dramatically different from when you're 10 to when you're 30. Yeah I imagine so I can't wait to replay that one microzine that we played at Kansas Fest last year. You mean in 20 years? Yes <laughs> well no just next time. That did sound like a lot of fun. It is fun I like it maybe I should uh do a session at Kansas Fest about microzines. Bruce Baker has done quite a few on his favorite soft discs. I can do my favorite microzines. The only problem with microzine is that those things were really well copy protected and it's really hard to emulate them. So I would probably want to do my session on an actual Apple II, which... There are no Apple IIs at Kansas. Yeah, nobody would bring one of those. Man, you guys don't cut me any slack. No. Just pull one out of the back of uh, Sean's truck or... Or Eric Rocker or anybody else who shows up in a car. Well, fine. If that's what you're going to be, I don't have anything else to contribute to the eBay section. Fine. Fine. This is an auction that I actually should have mentioned last month and, and totally spaced it. On eBay, one of the blue boxes that Jobs and Waz sold in what, the 70s, like 71, 72, I guess, uh, was sold. And that piece of memorabilia went for more than $1,000. How many of those are left? I have no idea. I don't even know how many they, they originally sold. Uh, I can't imagine that there were very many of them. So I watched it, and I thought about bidding on it, but the seller had no feedback at all, so that tends to make me a little bit wary. I'd be a lot of bit wary. Yeah. So moving on to Apple II stuff. 
Yeah, it appears that there are lots of auctions going on that are going for numbers that you know are ten times what they were doing four or five months ago. I can't imagine people are trying to cash in on this, but people are actually buying these things. Uh, you have a couple links to some that really are scaring me. Yeah, there, there's one that went for uh, what was that sixty one hundred dollars. Um, this one, uh, it's in it's in a later. A later model case with the the vents on the side and the uh, later power supply with the 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 flip switch instead of the toggle. Uh, but it looks like it actually is a revision zero. So it, I would my guess anyway would be that this was purchased. You know, some of the very first Apple II uh, computers that were sold were sold the same way that the Apple One was. You could you bought the motherboard um, and then you built your own case and you could either buy it in pieces or, or assemble it yourself. Uh, so I. I would say that somebody bought this and then later on bought a case for it and, and stuck the motherboard in there. But that one went for $6,100 after six bids. A little bit out of my price range for sure. And it, it seems like when one of these pulls down a huge price tag, a bunch of them show up um, for really high prices. Another one went for $3,000. This one says it's a 1978 Apple II, original Apple II. It's again, a, it's with, with one of the cases with the, the side venting. This one does come with all of its original documentation. The Apple Red Book is included. It looks like there's a cassette player, uh, as well as a bunch of third-party books like uh, Rodney Zach's Apple Machine Language book. And did you notice that that sold for one bid? It yeah, wasn't even. It's like somebody did it right away. And the notes find a better question. Apparently, 25% of the keys don't even work. Yeah, I, that's just crazy. But I, I, it looks like there's kind of a little frenzy, maybe a little. Uh, uh, bubble, if you want to call it, going on with some of this hardware, and, and I'm sure at least some of it was brought about, uh, unfortunately, by the death of Steve Jobs. And I had another one here that went for $5,995. It, it actually looks like the listing was pulled. Uh, it doesn't look like it was sold through eBay, but the pictures of that system are just incredible. I mean, if you really want to see what an old system should look like, that is. Yeah, that is that is shiny, clean, and new. Um, there's definitely no no doubt about that. Uh, yeah, this one did not. It looks like it ended. I don't know. It didn't say how many bids or anything like that. So this one is not a revision zero motherboard though. Um, so I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Hey, Mike, there's some discussions about uh, revision zero and the other boards. Uh, what was the difference in those? Well, actually, there are uh, a couple of websites out there that can help you determine that. I have, I've never had an original Apple II, and so sometimes when I'm looking at the, I mean, not that I would ever be able to bid $6,000 on one of these. Come on, wife. I can bid me. it, I just can't pay it. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, but there's a couple of websites out there, and in fact, Mike Willegal has a, a webpage on how to quickly identify um, whether this is a an original Apple II or one that's been upgraded to a two plus, or whether it's a revision zero, um, so if you're if you're looking for this at these prices, I would definitely say you know take a minute and and go through the web pages and make sure that you're actually getting what you're bidding on. Um, I, I would imagine that some of the especially you know if they want you to think it's a revision zero and it's not, you know you may not you may not get really clear pictures of the motherboard. Or the the items that you're supposed to be looking for to determine that it's a, a Rev Zero. But from a usage standpoint, there's not really any difference except was it four colors instead of six? Right. The later Apple Twos have a uh, color color circuit. Yeah, there's a circuit that uh, limits the colors to to four. 
Uh, and you can look very clearly on the motherboard and see that. And the original Re Revision Zero boards didn't have that uh, circuit there. So that's one real quick and easy way to tell whether you're looking at a, a Rev Zero or a later model. Well, later models had the color color circuit so that text wasn't fringed too right. often. Apparently it didn't work terribly well most of the time. But uh, it's pretty easy to see on the board it's there. But from a usage standpoint, a user wouldn't really, except for maybe missing those colors, see a whole lot of difference. Except, you know, a two and a two plus work differently but uh, from a use standpoint you'd be happy with either uh, but if you're buying a collectible make sure you're getting the right stuff so yeah and these days i mean the only reason really to buy these things is, is for collectibles because i mean they're not very functional as far as a machine that you can take home use and start running apple software on right now and at 6100 bucks, uh, you know, you're not going to do a whole lot with it. Give them six months to a year, and I'll bet you they'll drop back down to five or $600. Yeah, I wouldn't expect them to go much under that, but they'll certainly be, hopefully, a little bit more affordable. Uh, there was an explosion on the news groups a few days ago, maybe a week, <coughs> about a big collection in Australia. Do you know anything about that? I was reading that, uh, and, and I looked at, it, okay, the, the asking price is uh, was sixty nine thousand uh, dollars Australian, which translates to sixty eight thousand four hundred U.S. dollars, roughly. So I, I guess if you have a whole lot of money to burn, and you just want that list, when you go through the list of the systems he has, they are amazing. I mean, I'm talking about I want an accelerator. This guy's got like eight of them. Holy cow! But I don't need eight. I just need one. <laughs> right, and, and he's not willing to break them up at all. He said, you gotta, you got to take the whole thing. Apparently somebody and... says, has met him and said he's really a nice guy and he really cares about the machines. I mean, if you're going to spend 68000 this is the guy you want to buy from. I suppose, but I mean, there, there are no pictures, you know, and he doesn't really go into any detail at all other than I have eight accelerators. I have three of this. I do that. Uh, apparently somebody had been and seen him in the past, so they're familiar with him. He's mm -hmm. kind of like one of the guys we have in our areas. But their stopper for me is the local pickup required. I guess well, if I had 68000 to spend, I'd have the money to go pick yeah, it up myself. But yeah, probably so. <laughs> that is an amazing group. Uh, I just I, I don't think there's any way to make that make sense for anybody. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that he started at that price. I mean, he probably could have got several thousand dollars for it. It's a lot of work to part these things out, and I'm thinking he's looking for help to get them out of the place, too. Yeah. But do read the listing, because it's incredible <laughs> what he says he has. And the news groups uh, definitely have some conversation and back and forth with people that know this guy. Yeah, and I just want to make a quick correction here. I'd said it was seven. It was $69,000 Australian. He's actually It's actually $74,000 Australian starting bid, or you can just buy it now for 75000 Wow. He does not have any bids yet. And I don't imagine that he's going to get any. Well, normally this is the point of the show where we'd segue into Name the Game, but that segment is currently on hiatus. Whether or not it returns may be determined by the results of the reader survey, which is running the entire month of December. So check that out at open-apple.net slash survey. In the meantime, it is December and the holidays are coming up. Whatever your faith, this is often a time of year when gift giving is the norm. And so I'm wondering what you guys are hoping for this holiday season. World peace. And what are you doing to contribute to that? Absolutely nothing. Oh, you just want you want other people to give it to you. I'm wishing really hard for it. Either of you have any Apple II items on your wish list? Well, I got one of them. Well, my CFFA 3000 is pretty awesome, but now I need an accelerator. So 
What's the correlation between a CFFA and an accelerator? Oh, because the CFFA is awesome and makes everything available. And now I just have to convince my 2GS to run it as opposed to walk it. <laughs> uh, now, would you would you want a Transwarp or a ZipGS? I don't care. <laughs> That's the problem. There really isn't right. an option. They're <laughs> simply not available. Santa? When did you get your CFFA? Uh, at Kansas Fest, of course. Oh, you picked it up on site. Nice. I did. I did. Because meeting all those guys, I mean... Meeting all those guys is just awesome. To to talk to Vince Briel, to talk to Rich Dreyer, to to meet Carrington Vanston, those are the wishes that I would have had had I not been at Kansas Fest last year. So you're saying you want to find Carrington under your Christmas tree? Not at all. That's scary because <laughs> I know what he'd be wearing. But uh, you know, all these neat things are are great. But meeting all the people was was you know the dream that I really had. The CFFA is just an incredible piece of hardware, and it really helps. To go to solid state storage, you miss the whine of the hard disk, but you know, sometimes you just want it to work. So you want Kansas Fest and had Kansas Fest, have my CFA three thousand. Now I want the accelerator. Well, I want you to come to Kansas Fest twenty twelve. I do too. Good. And maybe you'll find an accelerator hiding in Sean's garage. I don't expect that, because Sean knows where all of those are. And you, Mike, besides World Peace? <laughs> uh Mike collecting wishes i guess if you want to call it that are, are sort of more aimed at the apple 3 right now oh we we don't talk about that on this show you're right you're right sorry <laughs> not really what is it you want <laughs> uh well there there was a a small sort of cottage industry of third party hardware and peripherals that were released for the apple 3 but because they came out after apple killed the machine they were they were never sold in large numbers and now they're very hard to come by um, for example, there's, there's a, a, an 800K three and a half inch drive for the Apple III, uh, and the interface card and, uh, a silent type printer, which was Apple's first, uh, printer that they ever produced and it came with the Apple III. You having trouble finding the driver for it? Well, see, and that's, that's one of the gotchas with the Apple III is that every piece of hardware requires a driver. And there's a, there's some hardware out there that the drivers just seem to have disappeared for. So even if you have it, you can't use it. Yeah, the silent type was a lot of work from a software standpoint, but it was yep. you know, an amazing solution. Yeah, it was quick and it was quiet. I don't know if it was quick. I don't know if it was quiet because it scratched. It was really didn't annoying. I had one and uh, the output quality was horrible, but yeah, the quality the quality definitely wasn't good, but it was certainly quieter than that the the Epson FX80 that I had the dot matrix. Oh yeah, those were really noisy. To have output made the machine a useful thing. That's right. What about you, Ken? I don't know that I've ever gotten anything Apple II related for a holiday, but if I have, it's been a long time. It's because your family has no idea how you work. How do you know my family so well? You're right on the money with that one. I listen to the podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't realize that they gained a reputation. Apparently, we get more personal than we thought. Lake Winnipesaukee. Oh, hush you. That means that you were listening to this episode that you're on. Hey, I'm a time traveler. He's doing better than I am. Just call me Doctor Who. Well, I too would like a CFFA 3K. I explained on a previous episode why I didn't get one at K-Fest. But it wasn't until I was reading your review, Mike, of the CFFA 3K that I realized that it can turn actual floppies into disk images right on the Apple II without connecting it with any other machine. Yep. That is a great feature. I just, as I mentioned, spent a couple of hours with Sarah doing disk image conversion over ADT Pro, and that works great. I love ADT Pro. I don't have any complaints about it, but I can't imagine that a process that occurs wholly within the Apple II wouldn't be faster. 
I mean, I already have the cables and I have another computer. And the whole point of making disk images is to use them on another computer anyway. So chances are you're going to have one anyway. ADT Pro isn't going to go away. It is the best way to get your first Apple running. Right. And so you're going to need it, and sure. it's awesome. But I can tell you, taking your USB out of your CFFA 3000, dropping it into your main rig and firing up an emulator, and being able to have everything exactly the way you have it on the main machine, absolutely amazing. Worth the price. It's cr absolutely transformative as far as how you use it because you can take it with you you don't have to pack your machine and risk it getting damaged you just walk off with it and go makes backups a lot easier too the bright side of course about ADD Pro is that the software is free and the hardware is just a pair of cables for 20 bucks and you don't even have to go 20 bucks you can get a $5 cable from uh, or a $2 cable from our friends at uh, Monoprice and do it by audio if you have to that's true that's, that's all very true that software is amazing Right, I have mine set up using the Ethernet card, which Peter Neubauer encouraged me to set up. So that's yet another hardware expense. If you're gonna, I wouldn't recommend buying Ethernet just to do ADD Pro. If you really need a piece of hardware to make your disk images, I would go with the CFFA3K. But my understanding is that they're actually sold out right now, so you can't get one anyway. Uh huh. I've got mine. Ah, put it put it on eBay. I wonder how much that would go for. Rich is definitely hard at work on on the second run of cards right now, so. Good. The guys worked really hard on the software after Kansas Fest, and it really came together. So if I can't have a CFFA 3K, perhaps a little bit more realistically, is something that I spotted when I was walking around Cambridge, Massachusetts, the Harvard campus, just last week. I got to see Occupy Harvard, which was kind of cool, a bunch of tents set up on the quad. But more interesting to me was one student who walked by me with a shirt that at first looked like a riff off the movie Jerry Maguire. I thought it said, you had me at hello, but no, this shirt actually said, you had me at hello world. I thought that was hilarious. I laughed out loud. I said, man, I love your shirt. He had no idea I was talking to him, just kept right on going. And then I had to turn around to the person I was with and explain why that shirt was so awesome. It is so true, because it is exactly the way I, I thought about it. The more I, I looked at it, I realized, you know, this is how things started. I was hooked at that point. It's that software development and delivery. Once you write that and you've got control, it's like, Wow, I'm in charge. One thing in my life I can control, dang it. Huh. Now, see, I was taking that in a completely different direction where if I saw, for example, an online dating profile where that was the woman's headline, I wouldn't need to read anything else. I just guess I don't date as much. <laughs> I think my wife might have a problem if I dated a girl that had that shirt. <laughs> unless, unless that was she. Oh, that's true. But then it's not really dating. You don't take your wife out on dates? You obviously are not married. <laughs> well, one of us is doing something wrong. Yeah, I think there's more than one of us doing something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe all of us. In, in the meantime, we have the opportunity to look forward to spending the holidays with our significant others, our families, and our friends. I hope everybody is looking forward to a great season, whether it's Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, the solstice, the new year, or none of the above, or all of them. Happy Festivus. That's right. Thank you. Happy Festivus. Everybody get your polls set up and be sure to perform great feats of strength. <laughs> Rob, any parting shots? I just wanted to thank the community and all of the uh, suppliers of equipment for the old Apple II machines. Despite losing uh, our friends at Reactive Micro for a while, the guys at uh, 16 Sector and, uh, and Cinecom, they make our machines still usable, still up-to-date, and still fun. So thank you for them. And hopefully they keep going in the new year. 
you know, with these machines coming up for $6,100, there's a lot of new people that obviously have more money than cents. Yeah. So take advantage now, hardware manufacturers. <laughs> yeah, on that note, I really should thank everybody who has made 2011 such a great year for my involvement with the Apple II. I want to thank everyone who contributed to JuiceGS and everybody who read JuiceGS. Everybody who read my Apple II Bits blog, which turned one-year-old this year, and everybody especially who listened to Open Apple. Nobody asked us to do this podcast. Nobody knew it was coming until we published that first episode back in February, and the reception has been great. We really appreciate people tuning in, sending feedback, and appearing on the show. There's been a lot of people on the show, and we have a lot more we want to have on the show. We're getting feedback with suggestions and requests, and we're adding them on to a very long list of things that we want to do with the show as well. So I... I'm thankful not only for the people who made the first year great, but the people who are going to tune in 2012 and the people who are going to be on the show. It was an honor to be here. It was an honor to ha- for you to be had. And I guess since we had that uh, well-spoken piece right there from Ken, I'll just go ahead and say thank you to everyone who contributed scans and their time to uh, Apple II scans and to my three loyal readers at 6502 Lane. Thank you. Well, Apple II forever for another year. Talk to you in 2012. Happy holidays. Night, everybody. Night. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. Hey, I'm a time traveler. Just call me Doctor Who. Who? Who? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, it's definitely getting late, isn't it?